So it's been about a month, but we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to kind of remind you what Ecclesiastes is about. So Ecclesiastes is the Old Testament wisdom book that's about real life. A key theme that is used throughout Ecclesiastes is that good King James Version word, vanity. We would maybe say frustrating or empty or meaningless. It's what it is like to live in a broken world, what the author refers to as under the sun. And we saw at the beginning of this book that the author, writing sort of under the guise of Solomon, perhaps it was Solomon himself, it's not particularly clear, but whoever this inspired author is, they, they live out several attempts to do life without God. They jump in. They don't just want to have a straw man argument for apologetics. They want to jump in and see, does this lifestyle work? And so we see him jump into hedonism and materialism and sensuality and, and stoicism before stoicism was a thing. He tries all these different ways to live without God, and he keeps coming back to the conclusion that they're frustrating. They're empty. They don't work. So here we are at the halfway mark of this book, and we're going to see him now honestly diagnosing the human condition. So our text for this morning is found on page 10 in your order of worship. will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, of, uh, excuse me, chapter 6, verses 7 through 12, and it's found for you on page 521 of the chair Bible there in front of you. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift for you. You're welcome to have that. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6, starting in verse 7, this is God's Word. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be already has been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly fathers, we come before your word this morning. We pray that you would open your word up to us. Give us, Lord, truth for our growth and for our transformation. May we see ourselves as we truly are, and may we see your gracious provision for us. And we pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's 2022. Whenever the scripture here uses the word man like this, it means humans. It, it means all y'all, okay, not just the males in the room. So right before this passage, Marty, if you remember, again, about a month ago, walked us through this gritty reminder of the life of an unbeliever, what life really looks like. And the text itself says this startling thing that God himself denies them joy, that they keep trying to find joy, but God himself denies it so that we will then turn and seek it in him. Now the author kind of zooms in and looks at how hard we struggle with our desires, how hard we toil after getting what we want under the sun only to find no fulfillment. What Ecclesiastes is telling us at this point is this. Here's where I want to put your mind. 
Okay, I want you to imagine that you live in the Yukon part of Alaska, okay? So it's real cold and it's real snowy and there's not a lot of like sandy beaches around because you know it's Alaska. All right, so it's middle of winter, you get up and you put on your flip-flops, you put on your Bermuda shorts, you put on your flowery shirt, you put on your gigantic overcoat and you go to the Y. You take your overcoat off, you're at the Y and you get on one of these weird torture machines. I think I have a picture of this. What, what is this machine? Anybody know? Tell me what this machine is. What is it? It's a treadmill, right? You hop on this treadmill. You live in Alaska, but you're wanting the beach, and so you hop on, and you start grunting and sweating and moving, and you're hoping maybe today's the day. At the end of the workout, maybe it's only 30 minutes of running, maybe it's a couple hours of running and walking together, I will find myself in sand and sun. Maybe this is it. And of course, you see the problem, right? You don't actually go anywhere on the treadmill. I hope, I hope you knew that, okay? If not, we got problems we got to talk about. The author of Ecclesiastes here, he wants us to see at this point is precisely this. Dealing with our broken selves in a broken world, day in and day out, what he calls life under the sun is a treadmill, and we're on it. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. We jump on the treadmill hoping to get somewhere better, but that's not how treadmills work. When you find yourself on a treadmill, the question is, do you accept it in resignation or do you understand it in hope? Well, the first thing you have to do when you're on a treadmill is you have to see that you're on a treadmill, but we're often so blinded by our own toil because it's been a hard day's night and we're working like a dog. We got no room to see this other stuff. In verse six, right before this, he told us that under the sun, it makes our life meaningless. Picking up on that theme, now he tells us that all of our toil is actually ultimately for our own pleasure and desires in this life but yet we're never satisfied. Look with me at verse seven. Here's how he says it. He says this, all the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. Mouth here is a reference for food or sustenance. It's not actually the normal word for mouth. And then the word appetite here, really interesting. Appetite is actually the Hebrew word most often used to translate soul, or what we would maybe say heart, the way we use heart today. In other words, this is bigger than eating. This is about satisfying your heart. This is about working so hard to enjoy life, to try to grasp joy while you're on the treadmill. All of our toil, he says, is to that end. And think about how hard you work just trying to be happy. How's that working for you? You know, this is actually really ahead of its time because philosophers in the Roman world several hundred years later taught that, that most misery in life comes from desires. And so one of the philosophical movements that popped up that it still influences us today was called Stoicism or the Stoics where they denied desire and they denied any kind of emotional reaction to desire, just kind of be flat. And these people were considered the ideal. They really got life. They didn't care. They didn't let it react. They were just chill, we would say. And into that world enforcing that new law comes the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaiming that no, God wants you to have abundant life. 
that joy is for us and that our desires are there because they're supposed to drive us to God as the source of joy, the way to fulfill those desires. But instead, verse 7 reminds us that we default to fulfilling our desires through toil to no avail. Let's do a thought experiment here, okay? Here we go. I want you to fill in the blank. You ready? If I only had, my life would be okay, maybe even great. What'd you put there? You don't have to tell me, but whatever goes in your blank, that's your functional savior. That's what you're looking to, to rescue you, to give you joy. Whatever it is, you will toil for it. You will work for that because you desire it. You think that will fix me. See, God's word here says, no, it won't. It'll put you on a treadmill. You'll work, you'll sweat, but you won't get anywhere. If you're in Alaska when you get on the treadmill, you're in Alaska when you get off the treadmill. You see, humanity was created with this desire for God, but life under the sun, a life that ignores God, can't offer satisfaction. It won't do it. So we yearn for the things that we substitute for God, but only God can offer it, and nothing we find satisfies us. And so we're kind of left with this insatiable feeling that just won't go away. We keep trying to stuff stuff in there to make it go away, but it won't. Famous author C.S. Lewis said of this longing in verse 7, he says this, he says, I kept experiencing an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. In his testimony, Lewis says that this is one of the things that drove him out of atheism and into Christianity because he couldn't explain why he longed for such joy when he never tasted joy before. See, under the sun, we're all thirsty for joy. And that thirst is only satisfied in the Creator, but separated from the Creator, our thirst for joy puts us on this path of constantly seeking, always journeying, but never finding. Here's really what it makes me think of. Here's, here's what I thought. Would, I found this picture online, and I want to show this picture. Remember this picture from when you were a kid? This was, this was all over cartoons all the time. Remember this one? Yeah, can I just tell you how hard it was to find a non-profane version of this picture online? So, I know. My favorite one that wasn't profane that I totally resonated with, but it'd be insulting so I didn't put up there, it showed a uh, large um, person with a Twinkie tied in front of them. So, and I was like, man, I could totally relate to that. So, anyway, you know what happens here, right? Boys and girls, you see what happens here? The donkey wants the carrot, so he takes a step towards the carrot, and what happens? the carrot moves a step further away because it's tied to him. So he takes another step, another step, and this is a way to trick this donkey into moving forward. And that's what Scripture here tells us life under the sun is like for us. It has us on a treadmill. It holds joy right out in front of us, tantalizing us to keep pressing on, toiling away. But we never find the satisfaction we truly seek. See, we want our joy, don't we? And verse 8 shows us it doesn't matter how wise we are. It doesn't matter how savvy we are. We are all led along like that donkey and his carrot on stick. We're all led along in our toil. Here's how we put verse 8 for the boys and girls. So it's kind of a weird verse. Here's how we did it for them. 
Let's look, boys and girls, if you're here with me, let's look on page 11, your verse 8 says this. Are smarter people happier than others? No. Are poor people who've learned to live on less happier? No. See, what he tells us here is that everybody under the sun is on an equal playing field of meaninglessness, of frustration, of toiling to be satisfied. And so the author lands on verse 9 where he says this. He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. And again, appetite is the word for soul or in our vernacular heart. This is the ancient equivalent of a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Remember that? It's better actually to obtain and hold on to something that perhaps is lesser than to stretch and let go for something you don't quite have. This toil we have for a desire for something we don't have yet. Boys and girls, here's what I mean by this. It's your birthday. You go to unwrap the present. It's a huge old present. You unwrap it. It's a big old box. You open the box and there's a picture of your favorite toy. (laughs) Are you happy? Is that what you want? You're like, yay, I have a picture of the toy. You're like, no, where's my toy, right? Or you go to a restaurant and you're famished, and so you grab the menu and you just start reading through the menu and all the incredible descriptions. You're like, ah, oh, that was great, and you leave. I'm satisfied. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. But our hearts do that to us, don't they? Our hearts like, oh, just keep searching, keep seeking, keep going after it. If you have something, you're never satisfied because you want more, better, different. Here's how one scholar puts this about desire. I love this. He says this. He says, desire is a tramp, never content to stay at home. It always wants to go out wandering. Our desires are always traveling but never arriving. This is the wanderlust of the human soul. See, contrary to what our culture says, the journey is not better than the destination. It's better to arrive at some satisfaction. And in the gospel, we arrive at joy. We get satisfaction because we get the resurrected Jesus himself. I know it sounds like such a churchy way to put it. And if you're here today and you're still investigating Christianity, I invite you to examine your own heart. Notice your desires, they're always on the move, aren't they? They rarely arrive. You reach one goal and immediately you want another goal. It's not enough. You don't feel secure. You don't feel happy. Maybe maybe this one will do it. Maybe this one will do it. That wanderlust deep in the human heart is there. But the promise of the gospel is that your heart can find a home. That Jesus Christ can give you satisfaction. He can give you real joy. He will anchor you by reuniting you with your creator. Oh, for those of you who are Christians, we are not immune to this. Let's not fool ourselves. We are often reaching out for something to satisfy ourselves before we make that purchase. They call it retail therapy for a reason, right? Maybe like me, before you eat that extra helping, before we hop online because somebody is wrong. It's up to me to fix it. Perhaps it's best if we ask, am I looking for joy here? instead of in Jesus. See, under the sun, we're stuck on this treadmill of frustration, seeking satisfaction where it can't be found, and on the treadmill, no matter how hard you toil, you never get anywhere. We jump on the treadmill hoping to get somewhere better. 
but that's not how treadmills work. So you got to see the treadmill. But the next thing you have to do, another possible solution is to, well, I guess you can just accept the treadmill maybe. You can kind of recognize, well, here I go again on my own. Look with me at verse 10. That's what he says. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. He basically says, look, you can't change the basic character of life under the sun. We would say it is what it is, right? When faced with a challenging situation, you can't change. It's frustrating. It is what it is. We can't accept our limitations. We can't stop the frustrations. Under the sun, it's a treadmill of looking for joy, but not being satisfied. And so we're looking again and again and again. And note that last part of verse 10 there. It says he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Just a few verses before this, the text actually said God denies joy to people so they will then seek him. And here he digs in on that and says, look, the creator has ordained life to be this way. We're meant to find joy in him, but when we seek it in other places, it's not gonna fulfill us. It just keeps us on that treadmill of discontent. See, Christian or not, when it gets down to our frustrations in life under the sun, verse 10 reminds us every complaint we have is a complaint against God. We're disputing with one stronger than us. We're ultimately saying, you are not running our life well. Nikki and I had this ongoing joke that the Lord has always been really good about getting us places to live. And he could use some training on how to be a realtor to get rid of places we've lived. <laughs> we've had two house payments most of my ministry career because we live somewhere that we're not living anymore. We still have a house there. And it's a red hot market, but for some reason people are always like, meh, to our houses. And we say that that way, not to be blasphemous, but to own the reality. Whenever you're complaining about something, if our theology of God being sovereign and purposeful is true, then it's always about his management of our life. Why not just own it? You're not a very good realtor, God. Can you get some help, please? We say it tongue in cheek and then we pray. And if you don't like that, you will let me know. I know. <laughs> See, but that's why verse 11 tells us, look with me. It says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? We disagree with what God is doing, and so we talk about it more and more and more. We work harder at it, but ultimately, there's no advantage to all of our toil against the way life is. See, this is, this is deeper than complaining about our lot in life. This is toiling to deal with life. If being discontent is our problem, then what we do in verse 11 is we try to find ways to manufacture contentment. Even a simple Google search will show you there are so many words out there about contentment. Just a few examples. The minimalist movement says, quote, contentment is the lifeblood of minimalism. And then they offer you, no joke, 15 steps to overcome desire and find contentment. Like minimalism, okay, 15 steps, interesting. The magazine Psychology Today says, quote, contentment is a choice. And it offers you only 10 practical steps on how to choose and manufacture contentment. 
And my favorite is from the Dave Ramsey financial cult, uh, principles, financial principles, sorry, where he says, quote, contentment can make you rich. And then he has this curriculum that you can buy from him so you can fight to get contentment through his set of steps. But you can't use a credit card to buy it. So how do we find contentment? See, what this verse is telling us in verse 11 is if the creator has indeed woven discontentment into the world under the sun, all of these self-help systems run up against the truth of verse 10 and 11. We can't fight against one stronger. It's just a bunch of words to no advantage. But in the gospel, one of the practical things that Jesus offers us is real, robust contentment. Not the emotional deadness of the Stoics of the past or the overmedicated of the present, but real biblical contentment where you care passionately about many things, but because your life is hidden with Christ, your identity is not found in fulfilling those things. And so you're not undone when those things don't satisfy you. Being rooted in the love of Jesus for you, being grounded in his absolute approval over you makes you enough. And when you feel enough, you're content, even in the brokenness of life under the sun. See, most people notice the brokenness. Most people kind of see this is kind of like a treadmill, but we can't get off the treadmill. And what we need is freedom on the treadmill. We need to be back in the saddle again, actually going to a destination instead of slaving for our own desires. And I really want you to get what he's talking about here. So I want you to feel this. So I want to do a little, I'm going to do something a little different this time, okay? I want to introduce you to a member of our family that many of you have met, some of you have not. I got a picture here of her for you. Let me, we got this picture. Here we go. This is Bailey, Okay. Bailey is one of the three official Sycamore dogs. If you're here during the week, Bailey is here, uh, Ainsley is here, and Chance is here. You're welcome to come and bring your dog as well. So I wouldn't recommend bringing a cat. That could be interesting. But anyway, so this is Bailey. She's mine. She's my buddy. She's precious. I love her. And she is brain damaged. Absolute truth, brain damaged. My kids and I will be in the backyard throwing the ball back and forth. And this dog is chasing the shadow of the ball. You can stop, take the ball, and roll it right in front of her, and she just looks at you like. But you can take that same ball and toss it up and down so it makes a shadow, and she will wear herself out, loping like a gazelle, tail wagging, chasing after that shadow. Brain damage. And the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to see that under the sun, we have the same brain damage. We're chasing the shadow of joy, hoping it will fulfill us, all while being completely oblivious to the reality of joy he sets before us, even when it's right in front of us. So we need help. And so he shows us that help in verse 12. Look with me in verse 12. He asks the question, who knows what's good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He says, we need someone to help us understand the treadmill so we'll stop chasing a shadow and actually get the reality. If we look at things without reference to God, what he calls living under the sun, we will never know what's good. We will never know what happens after we die. And we will stay stuck on the treadmill of frustration, chasing shadows, searching for joy but never being satisfied. 
We need someone to tell us what comes after this life. And into the frustrating, toilsome treadmill of life under the sun comes the gospel, promising that Jesus can actually catapult us beyond the sun. That in Jesus, with him as our destination, we have resources for being on the treadmill under the sun. Several years ago, when we used to live in Missouri, I remember going to the YMCA, and they always had like, these two really high-quality treadmills, and the rest of them were not very high-quality, so we always tried to get those two. We walk in there, I'm, I'm with a buddy from church, and there's these two guys we've never seen before on the two best treadmills. We're like, man... But these guys, they've got ankle weights, like several sets of ankle weights. They've got wrist weights, and they have these huge backpacks, and they're trucking along. They're not running, but they are walking at a brisk pace. And I asked one of the YMCA people, how long have they been here? He goes, they've been here about an hour. And they were there the whole time I was there, so at least about three hours that we know of, they're on this treadmill, and they're talking back and forth. They're having fun. They clearly are enjoying themselves. And so I went to one of the YMCA people, like, who are these people and what are they doing? Like, oh, you didn't hear, see it in the newsletter? These guys are training for a mountain climbing expedition. It's so great. He told me all this stuff. And I was like, oh, you know, and I was a pastor at the time. And I know, you know things when I see it, it's like, I'm going to use that one day. That's a really good illustration. And here it is. Because they knew their destination, because they had this thing right in front of them, we are going to be climbing this mountain. I think it was, uh, I think it was McKinley in Alaska, actually. Because we're going to be climbing Mount McKinley, We don't care about the toil of this treadmill. We don't care how hard it is. We have joy with each other because we're going there together. See, because of what was before them, they were able to endure all the tedium on the treadmill. They were free from the treadmill while being on the treadmill because they knew what was coming after the treadmill. And that certainty, that knowledge is what we get in the gospel when we see that in Jesus, God climbed onto the treadmill with us to free us from it. Jesus lived on the treadmill with us. He then died for us, for our sins, and he was raised back to new life to set us free from the treadmill. And he lives for us even now and says in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he is set before us. See, instead of this frustrating, shadowy life that we live under now, we're saved by Jesus' substantial life. And we're promised that one day, someday, his life will be our life. In other words, because of what's before us, we're able to endure the tedium of the treadmill. That in Jesus, we are free from the treadmill while being on the treadmill because we know what's coming after the treadmill. That's what's good for us in this vaporous, shadowy life is to be united to the indestructible life of Jesus. And he gives us meaning and purpose and contentment right now on the treadmill. Then having experienced and then defeated death, reigning as the resurrected Lord right now, Jesus can tell us the answers to verse 12. He can tell us what comes after. He can tell us what's good. And he says, I will give you peace and joy. That's what's coming later. See, instead of joy as a carrot on a stick keeping us on the treadmill, Jesus offers us joy right now. And he offers us the promise of a coming banquet where we can feast and be satisfied. I want you to feel that. 
Have you ever had a really good meal? Now, I don't mean home-cooked. Now, I love a home-cooked meal, and yes to the invitations you're going to send us, great, we'll do it. But I'm, I'm talking like at a banquet or a really nice restaurant or a really good like wedding reception where the, they bring all these courses and they're just so good. You can tell the chef just went all out. And as they clear that last course, if you're like me and you weren't trained properly, you, probably, you put your dessert fork or you put your spoon on that plate and they're about to take it away and they'll lean down and go, you're going to want to keep that spoon. And why do you want to keep the spoon? What do you think, boys and girls? Why do you want to keep the spoon? Because the best part's coming, right? The dessert is coming. And you're like, give me the good dessert. See, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus in the gospel, he doesn't get you off the treadmill under the sun, but he does give you resources for dealing with it. He sets you free from toiling for joy by giving you joy in this life. And then in his grace, he leans down as you're chugging along on that treadmill and he hands you a spoon. He says, you're gonna wanna keep this for the banquet of joy that's coming when one day, someday, he makes all things new. And with the Old Testament prophets over and over again show the afterlife as a banquet and a feast. How do you want that? That's the question at this point in Ecclesiastes. Do you want that? Then repent of looking to your efforts and believe the gospel. Cast off everything you've called religion everything you've assumed you know about Christianity and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And he'll take care of the rest. You can do that right now. You don't have to wait. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, enigmatic text like this can be so hard. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us the joy that this text holds out. Lord, would you help us to stop toiling after what you offer for free? Would you help us to see yet again that we have dissatisfaction so we can turn to you and be satisfied? Lord, we pray that you would give us our spoons and that we would dig into your dessert in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.